we're seeing a big transformation around just how accessible information is today, how investors are demanding more out of their investments, either by demanding lower costs or more transparency, lower risk. The needs of investors are really changing. I think, you know, part of what's going on in the ETF industry is really innovating to, you know, keep up with the demands of investors and how that's changed. That's Daniel Prince, CFA from iShares by BlackRock. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he'll tell Joe and Big Al all about exchange-traded funds and what the future holds as investing evolves. Also, will Donald Trump's new tax plan simplify taxes and spur economic growth as promised? If you're one of the 10,000 boomers a day now reaching the age where you must take distributions from your retirement accounts, how do you avoid screwing that up? Why might you consider making a qualified charitable distribution? And which is safer, government treasury bills or fixed indexed annuities? Here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA, with some answers. We got a fun filled, packed, entertaining program here for you today. Yeah, as usual, right? Oh. I mean, I am excited today. Are you? Yeah. Very good. Because I know it's going to be a great show. Donald Trump revealed somewhat of a tax plan. Yeah, it was more of an outline, I would say. Bullet points. Bullet if, <laughs> if you want to say that. <laughs> In fact, that's what the, the members of the press got. They got a, they got a one page, maybe it was a page and a half bullet points. But uh, anyway, it was delivered by um, White House Chief Economic Advisor Gary Cohen and Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. I learned how to pronounce it this way. Mnuchin. And Mnuchin. So... Um, did you get a chance to see it? Yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, it was interesting. Uh, so here's kind of the highlights, if you didn't see it, uh, is right now there's seven tax brackets. The lowest bracket is 10%. It goes to 15%. The highest bracket is 396 in the in the highest income levels. So they said, no, we don't want seven brackets. We want three. And, and you'll see a lot of uh, the similar theme, which is simplified taxes. So the three brackets would be 10%. 25% and 35%. So the lowest bracket would be roughly the same, 10 to 10. The highest bracket instead of 39.6 would be 35%. So this has changed um, since the campaign trail. Yes, because the campaign trail, Trump said he wanted 12 as the lowest bracket and 33 is the highest. Right. So I don't and know. So what they were basically doing was blending the overall rates. Right. So it was like take the 10 and 15% tax bracket and call it 12. Right. And so, well, if you take an average of those two, it's roughly around 12. Sure. And so from zero to, let's say if you're married, from zero to about $75,000 of taxable income would be about 12%. Yeah, that's right. And then from then, the 25 and 28% tax brackets, he wanted to combine and just call it 25. Right. So the 25% tax bracket starts at 75,001. Yeah. And then it, today it goes to about 150. Yeah. Then the 28 goes from 150 to about, what, 220. Yeah. Yeah, give or take. And so you combined those two and say, let's get rid of the 28, let's reduce that, let's just call it 25. So about $75,000 of taxable income for a married person to about 220000 of taxable income would be about 25% rate. And then anything over that, then would be 35%. So we're getting rid of the 33, 39.6, kind of blending those rates, calling it 35. Yeah, so now it's, it's more of a, let's keep the lowest bracket at 10. And the highest three brackets, 33, 35, 39.6, maybe we'll average that one. So right. that's kind of where we're at. It, it was not announced, Joe, what the income levels are. So that's that's to be announced. Sure. Uh, so we don't know yet. Um, but um, they pretty big changes in itemized deductions, too, is the um, mortgage interest. They'll keep that. The charitable contributions, they'll keep that, but get rid of everything else. So state deductions. So yeah. we pay a lot of state taxes, mm -hmm. so we would not be able to deduct our state taxes. Right. And so it really kind of hurts those that live in states that have high tax rates, such as California, where, where we're from. So itemized deductions. So only those two, the, the, the uh, charitable deduction and the mortgage interest would stay. What goes away would be medical deductions, state tax taxes, property taxes, DMV fees, uh, your miscellaneous itemized deductions, you know, for unreimbursed job expenses or investment expenses, tax prep fees, that kind of stuff would go away. But then he's also doubling up the the standard deduction to yeah, what, 24000 That's right, because the standard deduction for a, a right now for a married couple is a little over $12,000. And so, he did, yeah, he wants to double it to 24000 but then take away exemptions. So exemptions are around $4,000 per person. So a married couple right now, it's actually almost $13,000 standard deduction, a couple exemptions. That gets you, oh, that gets you to about, what, 
uh, 21,000. Yeah. yeah, 20, 20,000, 20, 21,000. Uh, and so it would, uh, it would up it to 24,000. What that hurts, of course, is people with kids. lots of kids, right? Because there's no such thing as exemptions anymore. So if you have 10 kids, which could happen, uh, not, not as common now as it used to be, but that would be $40,000 of deductions that would actually go away under this, this new tax law. Then we've got um, the 3.8% Medicare surtax. So this is interest income, dividends, capital gains, basically passive type income, rental income. If you're married and your income's over 250,000, single 200,000, you pay an extra 3.8% tax on those types of things, capital gains too. Anyway, that would go away. Um, we would have alternative minimum tax go away. So that usually hits married Couples somewhere around two hundred thousand of income. It's different for everybody, and and single people maybe one eighty, one seventy, something like that. So that would go away. The um, the death tax would go away. That's where when you pass away, if you have more than eleven million dollars of assets as a married couple, this is what the law is right now. You have to pay a forty percent tax over the excess. That would that would go away. The corporate rate, Joe, would go from thirty five percent to fifteen percent. And so that would be a big change. And, of course, the idea there is to have more profits retained by the company so they can invest in the future, hire more employees, create more jobs. And, and that's the uh, – it seems like to me that the overriding things in this, this, this whole outline is, one, to simplify, and two, is to, to try to uh, encourage economic growth for, for job creation. Yeah, we need it because you look at the first quarter, it's the lowest it's been in, what, three or four years? That's exactly right. right. 0.7% or something yeah. like that, GDP, uh, yeah. GDP growth. So the, the concern, of course, is that, um, yeah, if you, I don't think anyone disagrees with the fact that if you lower taxes, you're going to get more economic growth. The question is, is how it much? Enough? Yeah, is it, is it enough to cover the lower taxes? And this is where it seems to, it depends upon which party you belong to, <laughs> is your opinion. I will say, without trying to be political, most economists, Republican or Democrat, say no, this isn't going to pay for itself. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to listen more to the economists than I am the politicians, because that's not their, their specialty. So I think that's going to be the challenge. Yeah, but the politicians is what's going to push this thing through. Right, right. But in, so term, in terms of what's real, I guess is what I'm saying. But, but you're right. They're going to be <laughs> who, push, yeah, who pushes it through, right? So in all likelihood, well, this uh, – and again, this is just an outline. This is just kind of a beginning discussion point. And, uh, because if you look at – I mean, Al and I have been talking taxes for years on this show. And we're just – I mean, we're just – the tip of the iceberg here. How would it, what's going to happen with like passive loss rules and right. carry forward rules and you know everything else in between? That when you really kind of look at this and get in the weeds a little bit, um, yeah, I was. I actually, don't know how simplified you can make this. Well, I, right, and and I was reading on Friday. And this was from an anonymous source. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. But uh, he was saying that they're um, supposedly some kind of insider. He, he was saying that they're looking at, at reducing or eliminating corporate deductions. So, yeah, we'll reduce the tax rate, but you can't deduct anything. So that actually, for many companies, could be a tax increase. So there, there's just so much we don't know right now, and I think, uh, and it's, and and I think the Republican Party that's putting this together, Trump administration, they don't really know either. This is just more of an outline of what they'd like to have accomplished, and the the goals are are good, uh, I think, which is to reduce taxes and to and to spur economic growth. The uh, the tough part of this is if we were. If we had balanced budgets, if we had no debt, cool. But that's not true. We've got we're in deficit spending each year, meaning that we we bring in less tax dollars than we're spending as a government, and we're just adding to our pile of debt from prior years, and it's approaching twenty trillion dollars right now. So there's a deficit, which is what's the current year shortage, and, and the, the debt. national debt is actually the cumulative. Of, and you think, well, how, do, how does that happen? Well, the government issues treasury b bills and bonds and so forth, and we all invest in them, and they got to pay them back at some point, and that's how this is being funded. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the tr treasury bonds are loans. Yes. Right. They're, they're assets for you, but they're loans for the federal government. Correct. Right, because you're giving them money. 
Right. What are they doing with the money? They're spending it. Exactly. Right? It's Yeah, you're lending the government cash, and they're paying you an interest rate. The interest rate is not large. Um, right. But, but they're holding that to do capital improvements, paying, yeah. you know, Social Security, Medicare, building roads, yeah. paying for, you know. To, sure. And so, yeah, if you do the math, it's it's... There's, it's got to spur a lot of growth because what that means is that if I have less tax, that means I have more capital, I have more cash. And if I have more cash, the likelihood of me spending that is higher if I didn't have the cash to begin with. Right. And so if I'm going to the store and I'm, instead of buying one iPad, I might buy two. Right. right. Because I have a little bit more excess cash or more discretionary income. And right. so I'm going to go out and start spending a little bit more money. If I spend more money, that's going to help corporate. Operations increase their overall profitability as the increase yeah. in profits go up. All right. Well, even though the tax rate is lower, but they're taxing a lot higher dollar figure on a lot lower rate. Yes. So that should even things out if we get the growth that they're anticipating. Right. I think that's a good way to explain it. In other words, we've got the companies are more profitable than before. And so they're paying taxes on a higher profit level. It's just a lower rate. And hopefully, if you do this just right, it equals out. Right. If I'm going to tax you 39.6 on a million or 35% on 2 million. Yeah. Well, it makes sense, right? Because I'm, I'm I'm going to receive more dollars. The tax rate is lower, but because we you are able to increase your bottom line by another million dollars or 500,000 or whatever the, you know, the break even is on that. Right. So, stay tuned, right? Yes. There's a lot of unknowns here. So they could do it. And the, what I'm reading and this is what happened with Bush too back in 2000 with the Bush tax cuts. Uh, they sunset it, right? Uh, it was supposed to last for 10 years. And so if this tax bill goes through, probably is going to be the same thing. So you got 10 years of this. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of different planning that you might want to do. And if it blows up, you better have all your money into a Roth, <laughs> right? Or something like that. It's been three decades since the last major tax reform, but as you just heard, this could be about to change in a major way. That said, the president and the Republican Party are still divided on a number of key policy questions. Visit the White Paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download the White Paper Tax Reform, Trump versus House GOP, for a deeper look into the proposals. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Are your tax strategies at risk? Download the Tax Reform White Paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. Joe Anderson here. I'm a certified financial planner with Alan Klopine. He's a CPA. Alan, it's that time of the show. It is. It's our favorite time, isn't it? Because the show becomes a lot more, um, I don't know, intellectual? Is that the right word? <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> we always try to find someone a lot smarter than us, and yes. I think we did it once again. We, we got uh, Daniel Prince on the line. He's a CFA, Chartered Financial Analyst. He's a director, and he's a head of iShares Product Consulting at BlackRock. BlackRock's a pretty small company. Yeah, yeah. No, I think they, most people have heard of that. They, they don't manage much at, at all in regards to assets. So I want to bring Danny on right away, and I want to get into just educating our listeners, and probably Al and I, more importantly, on the world of finance in the eyes of Danny Prince. Danny, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, uh, Joe Now, uh, Nice to be here. So your specialty is in the exchange-traded funds um, at BlackRock. How much money does BlackRock manage now, like the, half the world? Uh, well, a little, a little bit less than half the world, but we currently manage north of uh, five trillion in total um, assets across, you know, active and passive strategies on a global basis. ETFs are getting extremely popular, and they've been around for quite some time. Let's go through like the ABCs here of exchange traded funds. What was the genesis behind it? How do they work? Why would want to someone want to invest in an exchange traded fund versus maybe any other? Product uh, that might be available to them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a you know a pr- pretty broad question. I'm going to try to try to focus. We only have three hours. Well, you only have three hours. That's good. Um, I'll probably only take two and a half. Uh, Perfect. No, you know, if, look. If I had to simplify, you know, the ETF industry and how it's grown, you know, the first ETFs or exchange traded funds came out in 1993, um, and since then you've seen just an explosion of innovation and just giving investors different tools and a different ways to invest. And you know, here we are, uh, you know, in 2017. 
Um, and the growth has been really tremendous uh, in the space. Uh, there's north of $3 trillion invested through exchange-traded funds today. Um, you know, iShares, uh, which are ETFs built by BlackRock, at iShares alone, we have just in the U.S. 337 ETFs. So for us, we're giving investors tools to really build uh, thoughtful portfolios. Uh, when I think about uh, why investors are using ETFs today. And I bubbled up into a couple of couple you know key uh, takeaways or value adds that ETFs bring: really low cost uh, exposure, uh, tax efficiency. You know, knowing what you own. Most ETFs are are transparent, so you actually know what you invest in, um, and could really help to diversify away from single stock risk. So those are really you know some of the key attributes that have led towards this really explosion of growth in the ETF industry. What do you think that explosion happened? Well, two thousand eight, a lot of people lost a lot of money. There was a lot of even back in two thousand when, um, you know, when the the mutual fund industry itself, there was some shenanigans going on with some of the actively managed funds and um, some of the trading activities that they were doing. And I think this gives another alternative to an average retail individual investor maybe to start constructing their portfolio more like an institution um, and get broad diversification that's extremely transparent so they know what they own at a very low cost, and not to mention there's a lot of tax efficiencies that go along with it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of 2008, I think that was a, a major shift in uh, the asset management industry where, you know, for the first time ever, I think investors started to value transparency more than opacity. And, um you know, I think it was you know 2008. We had a pretty we had a pretty good year um, at iShares as far as flows. You know, given the idea of, of actually helping to manage risk. You know, when when you need it most is, is you know in times like 2008. So we saw a big trend or a big shift. I would say in 2008 uh, for investors actually wanting to know what they own and, and know what their exposure was and really diversifying away from um, some of the single stock positions they'd, they'd previously held that weren't doing so well during that time period. So major transformational year in the industry. What is the difference between an exchange-traded fund and, let's say, an indexed fund? Because there's a lot of similarities, but there's also a lot of differences. Yeah, I'd say from a, um, from a strategy perspective, you know, both index funds and uh, the majority of ETFs today simply track an index. So from, from a strategy or from what you're trying to invest in, uh, they could be very similar. Um, in fact, we have index funds that track the same index as some of our exchange-traded funds or ETFs. So from a strategy perspective, they can get pretty similar. You know, one of the uh, key differences be- between an index fund and, and an exchange-traded fund would be the, the structure and how you trade and, and, and sort of the, the, the tax efficiency behind an ETF uh, that's uh, less so on the um, index fund side. Um, so some of it really comes down to how inter- investors can buy throughout the day with an ETF, Whereas an index fund, you can only really purchase it uh, at the closing uh, NAV of that day. So you get some liquidity advantages, also some inherent tax uh, efficiency advantages uh, with an ETF structure. Why did they come up with the ETF versus just an um, index fund? Because of the trading of it? Like institutions wanted to have a bigger block of a, a specific index um, where they didn't have to buy those particular issues, where they could just buy the, the exchange-traded fund and trade it like a stock? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think when you know the industry, when the first ETF came out in 1993, I think a lot of skeptics were, hey, why can't I just go get this through a traditional fund? And at the time, I think the, the first couple ETFs were actually targeted more towards traders, being able to you know, buy the S&P 500, but do so uh, intraday throughout the day. Um, also, you know, because it traded like a stock, you can long and short uh, an ETF where you can't do the same thing with an index fund. So there were some inherent advantages early on for traders, which as the industry evolved and grew, and as we moved into the 2000s, we start to leverage the ETF structure for more of long-term holders as opposed to just short-term traders. So it's actually evolved on who the users of ETFs were from when they were first launched and the inherent advantages uh, that institutions were getting by trading markets as opposed to just buying and holding markets. 
So, if that makes sense. Yeah. So our listeners are probably not institutional traders. So let's say I'm just average Joe, and I have an opportunity to, and I want to buy, I don't know, the Wilshire 5000, just total stock market, or maybe the S&P 500. And I have an opportunity to say I can buy an S&P 500 index fund or an S&P 500 exchange-traded fund. What would be the difference there? You know, from, from what you hold, there's there's less of a difference um, from from the two uh, experiences. Uh, you know, one reason why you might want to hold an, an ETF uh, that could be the potential tax advantages uh, that the ETF structure has. Although, when you look at it across the board and you see um, S and P 500 index funds or S and P 500 ETFs, they're generally both fairly tax efficient. Um, but if you if you weren't looking to trade. You know, that means there's one less advantage of an ETF uh, for you. Um, but there are some inherent advantages that an ETF structure will have because, uh, you know, ETFs are exchanged uh, between a buyer and a seller. So what you eliminate is a, a lot of the mutual part where other shareholders coming into the fund and, and, and redeeming from the fund can impact the overall fund performance. You tend to externalize more of the cost of others getting in and out of the fund. And if I had to bubble that down into one bullet point, I would say that ETF really democratized access and made you know, an investor pays their own freight getting in and out of the fund versus the mutual aspect uh, where others can impact uh, your performance for moving in and out of the fund. But at the end of the day, they're, they're, they can be very similar um, from a cost and a return perspective. So are there any advantages over an index fund, over an ETF? You know, I, you get the question a lot, and, and there is. You know, if, if, And it depends on, on the individual and, and how you access markets and how much you pay in commissions. And, and I'll tell you about my I have a friend who, who called me up, and he was excited to um, started saving a little bit of money every month. And he was really excited to buy one of our bond funds. And, um, he, you know, he was, he was putting in too few dollars where the commissions actually made sense, where the expected yield of the fund was actually less than what he was paying in commissions. And so I encouraged him, you know, you should really buy a, a mutual fund with, without a commission uh, because, you know, based on you know, how much you're paying, it actually doesn't make sense to buy the ETF. So, you know, if you're sort of dripping money slowly each month and you're paying commissions, you may eat away some of your return um, if you pay more in commissions for ETFs. And, you know, every platform is different, so it's hard to say, uh, you know, which uh, costs you more. But just doing the math around how much you're, you're, you're investing versus commissions could, could play a role there. Um, also, you know, ETFs aren't on every platform. Um, so if you have a, a qualified account or a 401k, you know, you may not see ETFs in, inside of that platform where you might see a, an index fund. And, and I think, again, you know, one of the key messages I want to get across, there's not a big difference between, you know, an index fund and the ETF, maybe nuanced differences. Investor optimism seems high right now, but who knows what's ahead? Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. And right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the Winner's Game by Larry Swedro with a foreword by Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. We're talking to Danny Prince. He's a chartered financial analyst. Uh, he works at BlackRock. So the, I guess to put it in real layman's terms, if I'm buying an exchange-traded fund, ETF, I would pick an area of the market, large cap growth, and then I could um, track that index. So I, I'm going to buy all the stocks in that particular area of the market. And I could do that in a couple of different ways. I could hire a, 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 a fund manager and buy an actively managed fund. I could buy a index fund that would just buy those particular stocks, or I could buy an exchange-traded fund and buy those particular stocks. And so I'm just basically mirroring that particular index by buying the exchange-traded fund in real layman's terms. Fair? Is that is that an accurate description? 
you summed it up perfectly. Absolutely. So there's more choice to look at. All right. Well, then now I have to. If I'm buying these stocks, do I? How do I want to hold them? And with an exchange traded fund, the the major difference is is how it's traded. So if I'm buying and selling that exchange traded fund, and I want to put option or whatever on this thing, I have that option because it trades like a stock versus a mutual fund where it's going to close at net asset value at the end of the day. And but the pricing is very similar to an exchange traded fund and an index fund, correct? Yeah, from from an expense ratio standpoint, yeah, they can get fairly uh, fairly close. Yeah, the pricing doesn't differ too much. And I think I think you started to touch upon something. Maybe we didn't dive into too much, but you know, ETFs because they do trade like a stock, you could start to incorporate trading strategies that you can't do with a traditional fund. So if you want to use stop limit orders to help protect a position, you can do that. Or if you want to use an option, there's options on ETFs which do not exist for mutual funds. So if you know, you're know you an investor and you want to do, let's say, a protective put option or a covered call option, you know that's available to you only really in an ETF format, not through a mutual fund. So there's some additional trading strategies and options-based strategies that you could do with an ETF that you can't do with a mutual fund. Now there's 350 different ETFs. I mean, what what are some ob- obscure ETFs that someone could purchase? Uh, well, uh, you know, I won't call it obscure because we launched it just a couple days ago. But just to tell you the level of granularity, you know, two days ago we launched an Argentina fund. So here's uh, an ETF that trades on the U.S. stock exchange that gives investors the ability to buy a diversified basket of stocks exposed to Argentina. Um, it's just our most recent launch, not to say it's obscure or not, but we do have a lot of investors who are trying to access different parts of the market as U.S. investors here, um, and, and that would be just one of our more recent launches, um, you know, giving you that sort of precise access to, to the Argentinian market. Um, you know, the way that we manage our lineup or the way that we think about the industry is giving investors choice. You know, our goal isn't to, you know, confuse investors. I mean, at the end of the day, they're transparent. You can look on our website and look what they hold. You, you know what you own. But we want to give investors the flexibility to really build their own portfolios and, and give them the precise tools as, as finely tuned as possible. You know, Jack Bogle, I guess the kind of one of the founding fathers of the index fund, big believer of you know buy and hold and kind of forget. And now with the the birth of the exchange traded funds, where they're getting so niche in a sense. I mean, Argentina. I mean, Al, are you going to buy that Argentina fund? Yeah, right? I'm going to put about fifteen percent of the portfolio. <laughs> but I mean, it's crazy now of how precise yeah. that you can get into your overall portfolio and how advanced um, you know Wall Street is getting, and it's 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 pretty incredible. Where do you see the industry going? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a couple different avenues of, of, of growth, um, you know, that we see here at iShares BlackRock. Um, you know, one is the, the type of users that we're seeing in the shift um, uh, among, you know, retail and institutional uh, investors. You know, on the institutional side, I think there's been this, this sort of moment over the last few years where ETFs were viewed as indexing tools. So if you want to buy a market, you can kind of get access to that market and you can get in and out. We're seeing a lot of institutions who are being actively managing their portfolios, utilizing ETFs. We're also seeing a lot of asset managers today who, you know, who are running mutual funds and, and other strategies who are using ETFs as tools in order to gain liquid and diversified access. So you know, one, one trend that we see growing here is you know, being active using indexes. Right? So actively assembling a portfolio, but doing so not at the stock or bond level, but doing so at the ETF level. Um, so that's the type of users that we're seeing in a big shift. A lot of institutional investors are, are really starting to, to use ETFs uh, today. From, from a strategy perspective, there's two main growth areas that we see. One is on the fixed income side, the, the bond side of the portfolio. We're seeing a lot of adoption with fixed income ETFs, and, and we see that growing at a faster rate than what traditionally was in the market around equities. And the other is around smart beta, this idea that the indexes that we track aren't necessarily market cap weighted plain vanilla equities, but there's something more strategic or there's something more smart about the strategy than just blindly buying the market. So we see fixed income 
and smart beta is two areas really growing in the marketplace today. You know, that's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up, Danny. Um, is Let's say if I buy an index fund or an ETF of you know the S&P 500 that's market-weighted, I would say, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the, a large percentage of my expected return in that particular investment is probably going to be in the top 25 holdings of the 500 companies because of that market weight. Would you say that's accurate or somewhere close to that? Yeah, I mean, the... the, the top holdings have a higher weight because they have a higher market cap. It's really meant to represent the market and not really take a viewpoint other than deliver where the average dollar is invested today. And so, you know, one of the, the top weights in, in the S&P 500 today is Apple. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's a fair to say that the top holdings garner more of the weight, you know, whether the top 20 holdings drive 50% of the performance and, you know, depends on what index you're tracking, but you most um, have a higher weight towards larger companies today. Sure. And if I'm in a, let's say a large company type fund, you know, you got Apple, Exxon, Mobile, Alphabet, you know, the big boys, the huge market cap companies are going to drive a lot of that. But with the smart beta or maybe an equally weighted um, index, it, 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 it's getting interesting of how the science of investing is is evolving. Of you know, I, I, I guess what you, you know, you're a CFA, one of the smartest people when it comes to finance, you know, out there. But you know, 30 years ago, when portfolio managers they didn't have that designation, right? They were bachelor's degrees, maybe liberal arts. And now, with the advancement of information, education, technology, um, it's pretty exciting where this world of investing is going to take us. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. We would we would fully agree with that, and you know we're seeing a big transformation around, you know, just how accessible information is today, how investors are demanding more out of their investments, either by demanding lower costs or more transparency, lower risk. You know, the needs of investors are really changing, and I think you know part of what's going on in the ETF industry is really innovating to you know keep up with the demands of investors and how that's changed. Um, so, you know, and I think, you know, when I think about when I started in the industry, there was just not as much computing power to do what we do today, or you couldn't achieve so much scale. And, you know, the way that we can operate and manage and launch ETFs have really evolved, uh, to the point where we're really picking up on some efficiencies, um, that we really couldn't get, uh, in years past. We're talking to Danny Prince. Hey, Danny, where can people get more information on if they're more interested in getting, you know, in the weeds and... ETF ABCs. Yeah, you know, just, you know, thinking about uh, our website, you know, iShares.com, you know, we have a great website. We spend a lot of time educating investors on ETFs and how they work. Uh, so we've got a great uh, site there. There's a section called About ETFs. You can learn about uh, what is an ETF and how to use them and how to buy them and go deeper into the mechanics. You know, iShares is a market leader in the space. We have about a 40% market share in the overall U.S. ETF industry. So we spend a lot of time educating investors on, on just the structure and how it works and, and what the benefits are. So, I, you know, a good plug for our website, iShares.com. All right. That's Danny Prince, folks. Thanks so much, Danny. Appreciate it. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture in handy bullet point format. This week, how to avoid common RMD mistakes. You've certainly heard, Joey, and you've said many times, 10,000 baby boomers are turning age 65 each and every day. Mm -hmm. Well, 10,000 baby boomers are now turning 70 and a half each and every day. And that's when you have to take your required minimum distribution. So if you've got an IRA or a 401k or a 403b, you have to start taking distributions out of that account. And it's, uh, we just in round numbers, it's about 4% of the account. So if you've got $100,000 in an IRA, you've got to pull out $4,000. Why? Because the IRS wants you to take that money out and pay taxes on it, because you haven't previously paid taxes on that. But uh, here's the number one common mistake and pitfall is deferring required minimum distributions one year too late and and there's penalties uh let's let's talk i guess we'll talk basically which is you're supposed to take your first required minimum distribution when you're 70 and a half 
and that's that roughly four percent, right, of your uh, of your account. You actually can wait, Joe. You can wait till April first of the following year, but then you have to take two required distributions that year. So if it was four thousand and you didn't take it this year, you'd have to do two of them. You'd have to do eight thousand dollars roughly next where, year. Where it gets confusing is when your where your birthday falls. Oh, that's true. Right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, all right, well, I turned seventy, so all right, now I I, I need to take that required minimum distribution. But if I turn seventy in July, right. M- I don't turn 70 and a half until the following year. Yeah, and most people don't track their half birthdays. Right, yeah. <laughs> so if my birthday's in July, all right, I turn 70 and a half the following year. Right. Then I could take it that year, or I could push it to April 1st the following year. True. <laughs> and then take two of them. Right. Right? So then, you, I mean, yeah, you've got to follow your half birthdays here. Yeah, right. It, then that's where it gets a little bit challenging. Because I think, all right, well, here, I heard I could push it out to the, the next year. But if your birthday's in June, right. right, now you have to take it the following year. So it gets very, yeah. very confusing on these half years. Yeah, and to say it again, if it's in June, you, you're supposed to take it this year. You can delay it till next year, but then you have to take two required minimum distributions next year. So that's and if you don't take them when you're supposed to, it's a fifty percent penalty. So here's another thing I think a lot of you need to really understand. It's called your RBD. It's your required beginning date. That is the date that you need to start taking your required minimum distributions. So that will help. Then you don't have to just figure that out. All right, here's my required beginning date, and then start taking your distributions from there. Okay, very well said. Number two. Okay. Taking your required minimum distribution from the wrong account. This is easily done because the rules are so crazy. What if you have a 401k, 403b, because you've worked for the government at one point, or 401a, you have an IRA? It's like... Can I just take one out of my IRA? No, you gotta. It, why don't you go over those rules, Joe? Because because sometimes you can aggregate accounts. Like if you have ten IRAs, you can pretend like you have one, but that doesn't work with four hundred one ks. Right. There's different rules for different types of accounts depending on what the statute is under the IRS code. So IRAs, for instance, a lot of you have multiple different IRAs. So you have you know an old four hundred one k that you rolled into an IRA at Vanguard, and then you have another one that's at and then another one that you started at American Funds. So let's say you have three different IRAs, you turn 70 and a half. You have to take a required distribution, but you can aggregate all of the different IRAs. So you have $100,000 in each of them. So then you look at December 31st and say the year before your required beginning date, that's the, the number they look at. And then they'll say, all right, $300,000 in total IRAs. Your distribution is... What, 12 grand, something like that. Right. So you could take the $12,000 requirement distribution. And why they have this in the first place is they want the money out of these retirement accounts. They want their taxes. They do. So once you turn 70 and a half, you're required by law to start taking money out of your retirement accounts. And so then you take the $12,000 out, you could take it out of all three to add up to the 12000 or you could take it from one. That's pretty simple. But no, a lot of you. That's IRAs. That's IRAs. But a lot of you have a 401k. And maybe you have two four old 401ks from two old employers. Right. Maybe you have a, a side business, side hustle that you set up a SEP IRA in, right? And then you have a spouse that has a, a 403b, right? In a 457 plan. Well, now it gets complicated because each 401k plan needs their own separate requ- required minimum distribution. You cannot aggregate that. Then you can aggregate IRAs, but now, and a lot of times they'll say, well, here, my spouse has 100000 I have 100000 200000 right? I'm going to take three... $3,500 out for my distribution, I'm just going to take it out of my account. Yeah, for everything. For everything. No, each account, if it's titled as a 401k, 403b, 457 plan, all of those plans have their own separate. You cannot aggregate all of those together, so be careful. All right, so so let's think about this. So you have four IRAs, and you have four old 401ks, because you never consolidated anything. Now you, you hit 70 and a half. You can consolidate the IRAs as if you had one account. So you take one required distribution from the four IRAs in one IRA of your choice. That doesn't matter. But the 401ks, that's four different required distributions. So in that example, you're going to have to do five different required minimum distributions, one out of each 401k, and then you can aggregate the IRAs. That's why you probably should consolidate. <laughs> probably, right? <laughs> now, what if you have... 
Several 403Bs. Same, same. Yeah. Right. It's IRAs can aggregate. IRAs, SEP IRAs, simple IRAs, anything that has an IRA behind it, you can aggregate those. But then all of a sudden you get the 403B and then a 401K and a 457. Each of those different plans has their own separate required distribution. Right. And then related to this is, and a lot of people don't realize this, if you're still working at age 70 and a half, and some people are, is... uh, You get an exception. Yeah, you you don't have to pull your required distribution out of that active 401K. And a lot of 401Ks allow you to roll old assets into that account, even from IRAs. So you might be able to take your old 401ks and your old IRAs, roll it into your current 401k and not have to have a required minimum distribution till after you retire. Right. Unless you're a fi- unless it's your own business, right? Yes. You got It's 5% ownership on right. that. So let's say if you work for a large company, we give that advice all the time. Let's consolidate this into your current employer's plan. You can continue to delay that required distribution until April 1st, the year after you retire. So... Um, but then you would have to take two. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> so, so if you followed any of that, uh, yeah. God bless you, yep. because you're paying attention. Do you play the market like a video game, or are your investments in line with your values? Do you have a plan to achieve your retirement goals? Visit YourMoneyYourWealth.com to sign up for your free financial assessment. There are so many things to think about. Income, risk, asset allocation, inflation, taxes, social security, health care, Medicare, long-term care. The list goes on and on. Talk to a professional. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at YourMoneyYourWealth.com. Hey, welcome back to the show. Show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson here, certified financial planner, Big Al, Clopine, CPA. Thanks for tuning in. You know, we were talking about retirement accounts, Alan. Yes. So there's something that's called a qualified distribution. It's a QCD. Yeah. Qual- qualified charitable distribution. distribution. I just want to see if you could remember it. QCD. But yeah, QCD. That's right. All right. So what that means is this, is that let's say if you are taking a required minimum distribution, and what that is, is that by law, it's a mandate that you have to pull money out of your retirement accounts at age 70 and a half, uh, for the most part. And if you do not take that required minimum distribution, you are penalized 50% on the distribution. So... A lot of times, if you have a lot of money, a lot of people don't necessarily want to take these required distributions because it's pulling too much money out of the accounts, pushing them up into higher tax brackets. So they came up with a QCD, Qualified Charitable charitable Donation or Uh, Qualified Charitable Distribution, whatever you want to call it. So that's given your required distribution directly to charity, up to $100,000. Yes. Why would someone do that versus let's say a highly appreciated stock to charity yeah it's it's a, it's a great question to ask because a highly appreciated stock is uh, if you give that away to charity then you don't have to pay taxes on the gain so in, in all honesty I would say Joe it depends it depends on how much gain you have in the stock and of course everyone's situation is a little bit different but as a, as a rule of thumb if you have a lot of gain in a, in a in a stock that you hold outside of retirement and you want to give to charity you're better off giving that to charity than your required minimum distribution you, the math works out better because here's if I if I do that qualified charitable distribution I'm not getting a tax deduction Correct. for that right? right that's the major difference that's the difference so, because it's going directly to the charity it's just it's getting out of my retirement account to the whatever yeah, the so, boys and so, girls so, club yeah so let me explain it this way so if you if you want to have your required minimum distribution go directly to charity then and let's say it's $8000 so $8000 goes to charity it's not counted in your income because you didn't receive it it's also not counted as a charitable deduction because it never you never paid tax on it so it's a wash. So your taxable income is the same as what it was. Right, like it never shows up. Right. On the other hand, if you've got a stock worth $8,000 that you bought for $500 or whatever, then if you give that to charity, you don't have to pay taxes on all that gain, $7,500 of gain. So that's a better way to go. And then you get the tax deduction for the $8,000. That's right. But Joe, I do want to emphasize, even though these qualified charitable distributions, so it's like, what's the point, right? I'm, I, I have less income, I've got less deductions, but I'm in the same 
same spot. There's actually eight different reasons why you would do it and still save taxes depending upon your circumstance. So first of all, if you don't have a required minimum distribution, you have less adjusted gross income. If you have less adjusted gross income, less of your Social Security may be taxable because the taxability of Social Security income is based upon your provisional income, which is essentially all your income except for Social Security. They'll take half of Social Security, and then you add your tax-free interest. That's your provisional income. And if you're below certain levels, less of that Social Security is taxable. So that could be a reason that you might want to do this. Do the charitable, Char- or do, the qualified charitable yeah. do- donation. And now I'm comparing doing a qualified charitable distribution as opposed to taking your required minimum distribution and giving it to charity. Got it. Okay? Another one is for those, uh, if, if you're married and your just gross income is above, above 250000 you would have less required minimum distribution on your part of your AGI, so you wouldn't, you'd have less of that 3.8% tax. Uh, right, because anything over $250,000, now you're subject to the Medicare surtax correct. at 3.8% on any capital asset. Likewise, med, uh, Medicare premiums, if you're just a gross income uh, for a married couple is above 170000 you will pay a higher dollar amount. Right for your Medicare premiums. Is, how does that work? Is it one dollar yes, over? Yes, it's a cliff, so it's one dollar over. Is right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, another one, Joe, is is if your income married uh, above three hundred thousand, single two hundred fifty thousand, your itemized deductions start getting phased out. So again, if you're reducing the amount of your adjust to gross income, your gross income, if you will, then you're going to have less of your itemized deductions phased out, maybe less of your exemptions phased out. So that's another one. Uh, real estate losses. If you're a real estate investor, uh, once you make more than $100,000, you start getting limited on what you can write off on your rental properties. So that would be another one. Roth contributions. Yet another reason why, if you, if you or your spouse are still working and you want to do a Roth contribution at certain income levels, you're not allowed to do it, if you take your required minimum distribution off your just gross income, then maybe all of a sudden you can make that contribution. So Roth contributions do not have an age limit, where IRA contributions do have an age limit. Uh, but it's the, the another driving force is income. So you need to have adjusted gross income to make contributions to retirement accounts. So if you're in your 70s and still working, right, then you can absolutely make Roth contributions as long as you're under the income threshold, and that is 180 86,000 to 196 if you're married. It's 116 to 132,000 if you're single. And you're going for your cheat sheet, and I'm off the top of my head here. I, I, think, it's, t- I think it's 133, but let me see here. 117 it's, to 133 or 116 to 132? It's, it's, it's 118 to 133, single, 186 to 196. You so got I that one right. married, whatever. Close <laughs> enough. I was off a buck. You're pretty close. Hey, here, here's maybe the biggest reason why you might want to do one of these qualified charitable distributions. Uh, is if you don't itemize your deductions, right. because charity is an itemized, itemized deduction. deduction. In other words, if you take the standard deduction, which if you're married, it's a little over $12,000. If you don't have enough itemized deductions, then you use the standard deduction. So if you give to charity, you don't get any benefit because you don't itemize anyway. And the majority of people actually don't itemize. Now, our listeners, I bet you the majority do. But if you're in that situation, then you certainly, if you want to give to charity, you might as well do this qualified charitable distribution because you're going to get no tax benefit otherwise. One more big one, if you want to be super generous to charity, uh, the uh, IRS says that you can only give 50% of your income. So let's just say... To get the deduction, to you get can the deduction. give more. You can give more, right? And then whatever you don't... Carries you can't over that for carries one, for five, five more years. years. But let's just say you make $50,000 and you want to give $50,000 to charity. And you know, you're probably going to use other assets, other resources, but if you have them and you want to do it, Iris says, no, you, you, you made $50,000, we'll only let you gift $25,000, and so therefore, it's uh, the other twenty-five you can't take currently as a deduction. Well, if you do the qualified charitable distribution, you can give any amount up to your required minimum distribution up to $100,000 per person. So that would be yet another reason. So, all right, I'm working. I'm seventy, I'm over seventy and a half. My, I have retirement accounts that are outside of my current active four hundred one k plan, and I make seventy five thousand dollars a year. Okay. I put twenty five thousand dollars into my current four hundred one k, twenty four thousand I'm rounding, sure. just to get it to the fifty thousand okay. dollar number. Okay. And then, or maybe my spouse is um, taking some. right, yeah, whatever. So I could then take. 
$100,000, that's the maximum, from my retirement account, and I could put that into a qualify, you know, to, to charity. Right, to your, your charity. And then that would be $100,000. Well, that that wouldn't give me a deduction. No deduction, but no income, and so there's no 50% income limitation. So you're you're avoiding that. Or I could give, if I wanted to give my paycheck to the United Way, I could only give 25,000 of it to the to get the tax deduction. That's correct. Yeah, you can only give up 50% of your income. And interestingly enough, if, if you give away, we, we're first talking about giving away appreciated stock, which is actually the best thing to give because then not only do you get the tax deduction for what the stock's worth, uh, you don't have to pay the tax on the gain. It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. This is to you, Alan. I'm 57 years old. Okay. If I retire, enroll my 401k to an IRA within 60 days of separating from my company... Will I be exempt from the 10% early distribution penalty in the IRA if I take distributions out of the IRA before 59 and a half? Okay. I've heard conflicting stories. <laughs> if the 401k is rolled over within 60 days of separating, whether an IRA is then also exempt from the 10% early tax penalty, just like the 401k would have been? Ah, that's a good question. I think a lot of people don't know that if you retire, separate from service, and you're 55 years uh, or, or older, but in this case, we'll say younger than 59 and a half, 55 and older, you can actually take dollars out without the 10% penalty. The normal rule that most of us know is 59 and a half. We've got to wait till then for an IRA to pull money out. Of course, we pay taxes either way, but then there's no penalty after 59 and a half. In a 401k world, it's 55. As soon as you roll money out of a 401k to an IRA, you're in the IRA world. So it's a, it's going to be a penalty uh, if you take it out before 59 and a half. There's 72T election. There's some, some ways around that. But it's it's if you're going to retire, if you have a 401k and you're 55 years old, let's say, and, you're, and you want to retire, so obviously you're younger than 59 and a half, then keep the money in your old 401k so you can access those dollars without the penalty. Now, at 59 and a half, you can roll it at that point, that's that's fine if that's what you want to do. I think this um, emailer is confusing two rules. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Right? Because he or she keeps referring to 60 days. Yeah. So if I roll yeah. my 401k out within 60 days of me separating from service, then I was told that now the IRA is exempt from the 10% penalty. Right. No, th- there's a 60-day rollover. Yes. That is with IRAs, not with 401ks. Right. A 60-day rollover is you take money out of the IRA, You can. there's no taxes, there's no penalties, as long as the money gets back into the IRA within 60 days. So you're saying, I, so I can't... I can't afford my rent payment, so I can pull the money out of an IRA, and if somehow I can get some money before 60 days, I put it back in within that 60-day period. At any age, there's no tax, no penalty. Correct. But he, it looks to me that this individual is retiring. Yes, it does. 57. Yeah. Got a 401k. I'm going to roll into an IRA. If I roll this thing into an IRA within 60 days, is it exempt from the 10% penalty? No. If it's in the IRA, it doesn't matter. There's no 60-day rule from a 401k to an IRA. It's like get it out of your, you know, get it out of your plan within 60 days. No, you move it into an IRA at any point, the next day or five, ten years after you retire. But the rules when it comes to IRAs is that there's a 60-day rollover that you have 60 days you can pull it out. But this is only one time. In a 12-month period. Yeah, and that's new. That was about three years ago. They came up with a, a, a ruling, uh, or actually an interpretation, I guess, of a ruling, uh, which was this. Because pe- here's what people were doing. They would have six or seven different IRAs, and they'd take 50000 out of one IRA. And then 60 days later, they would roll it back in, and then they'd take 50000 from another IRA, whatever the number is. And they just keep doing this shell game over and over and over again. Or they would take the 50000 from another IRA to put it in the that, other IRA. That's what I meant. Because the say. money's gone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so, right, they just 
can, you know, A to B, B to C, C to D, and so forth. And the IRS said, no, we don't want this. this. You guys are taking money out of the IRA, and, and it's not what we intended to do. So now they said, I don't care how many IRAs you have. We're going to treat it as if you have one, and you can only do it one within that particular year. And it's not a calendar year. It's it's the it's a year after you do it. So if you do it right now, we're we're in May. So then May of next year, 2018, then you could do it a Again. second time. Boy, a lot of people get tripped up on this because they sometimes they roll accounts from one IRA to another. They forget to do a direct trustee to trustee transfer so they get the money. And so then but they can put the money back into another IRA within 60 days, but you can only do that once in a year period. So we get these email questions from Investopedia. Well, I do. Alan answers them. <laughs> and then I take credit for it. Yeah, and you get the socks, too. Yes, I do. Thank you, just you got, very much. You just got one pair there. I did. That that means they don't really like They don't answers. like my answers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be getting a sock. I, I should. Yeah, yeah, probably, right? Yeah. So maybe some boxers. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of reading through the, the headlines here, and there's... A lot of questions, like this one, for instance, Alan. Okay. Um, I'm interested in working with a specific investment advisor who has recommended a fixed annuity. Okay. I've been unable to find any information on this individual from FINRA after 2010. FINRA is the financial regulatory agency. Um, how do I check them out? So what do you think is going on with this particular advisor? <laughs> I don't know. You answer that one. So FINRA is a regulatory agency. And so if you are licensed through a brokerage firm, such as um, a, a broker-dealer, so I might have a Series 7 license, a Series 6 license, a Series 24, 51, 53, 57, and a 2. Those were all of my old That's what you had in your, in your old life. In my old yeah. life. Is that every single, um, every, every, every single advisor that, well, I know where you're going to go with the, I think I know where you're going to go with the answer now, but every single advisor that sells security-type product has to have those licenses? Yeah. I mean, when you get started in the business, right, you take your Series 7. Right? Depends on, I mean, if you're more on the insurance side, I think it's a Series 6. A series right. 6 allows you to sell mutual funds. Right, right. Um, series 7 is more in-depth. It's a really challenging it's a, it's a it's a tough test sure um i took it i 20 years ago God, yeah. old, getting old Alan. You're, yeah about, you're almost as old as me yeah right i'm about <laughs> 20 years from that but uh 17 but, to be exact <laughs> that's the accountant in me um it's it's 10 give or take. Ish, yeah, give, yeah, yeah yeah give or take <laughs> so then so finra right so you can go to brokercheck.com if you ever want to check out a broker right um and say all right well is what is that broker you know got any, any trouble filed bankruptcy any criminal actions any any of his clients or her clients sued that broker so you can go to broker check and that's under finra and so they're saying, hey, I looked him up under FINRA, but I couldn't find anything after 2010. Yeah. Because this individual dropped their licenses in 2010. Yeah. And so why would why would an individual advise why do why would an advisor drop their licenses? Well, in this case, he's selling fixed annuities. I think he just doesn't want to deal with a regulatory agency to sit, because they're very strict on advertising what you can say, yeah. what you can't say. So fixed annuities don't have any securities in them, or, or right? No, you're you're now you're regulated by the state insurance board, right? Which is loosely, I mean, <laughs> I mean these people are saying all sorts of things. Sure. <laughs> So that's why this person can't find. They're not securities licensed anymore. So they, they used to be. They Yes, they the, used to be. They just probably said, you know what? I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to deal with that side of the business. I just want to sell insurance. Right. right. Something like that. Now, I suppose you could become a, um investment advisor with a registered investment advisor that's, a say, a hybrid type firm. Yeah, but you still have a Series 65 mm -hmm. to be a registered investment advisor. Sure. Okay. Or oh, you, would that show up in FINRA? That well, it would show you could then you would have to look under the IAR, it wouldn't because if you don't have a series seven license, I yeah, I mean, I, I haven't looked myself up on FINRA, yeah, because I, I had all those licenses, I, I still carried the 65 because of a registered investment advisor, right. or if you have a certain credentials and things like that, sure, sure. Um, but yeah, you're the name should show up, but if you if they're a registered investment advisor, they're not selling fixed annuities right. in most cases, in most cases. 
places. Yeah, not, not always. It's <laughs> true. We've met a couple. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a very good point, Clopine. Very good point. There's uh, there's a few people out there that, on the one hand, I'm this. On the other hand, oh, I got that. Hey, Deb, go to Finra. Look me up. <laughs> we'll see, see if, if he's there. Yeah. Because we are under the in- Securities Exchange Act of well, I'm, 34. I'm, I'm Series 65, too, so it, I should be there, too, I guess. If it, well, yeah, you it. are a registered investment advisor. Yeah. Or the firm is that. Yes. And I'm you a, are a, re- a representative yeah. or whatever. Yes. Hey, Alan, what do you think? Are T-bills safer than an indexed fixed annuity when you take into consideration the debt our government has? I'm considering an indexed fixed annuity. I'm 60 years old and have less than $125,000 to invest or roll over into something else for my retirement. Yeah. I do not trust the market, especially in uh, since it's rising so quick. Okay. Well, that's actually a reasonable question. Now let me let me let's talk about um, government T bills. So those are backed by the U.S. government, and uh, let's think about that for a second. So the the industry, the finance industry, calls the government T bills the risk free uh, right. rates. Yeah. In other words, there's there's virtually no risk. It's, it's from and and here's why they can say that is because the U.S. government prints its own money, right? So. Theoretically, it can't ever go in default. They would just print more money to pay it back. Now, if they print too much money, it causes inflation, and there's all kinds of problems. But that's why it's the risk-free rate. Now let's go to an insurance company. That, what did you say, fixed index annuity? Mm. That's what it is? Mm. Yep. Okay, well, that's backed by the insurance company. Does an insurance company have the ability to print its own money if it gets into trouble? Uh, the answer is no. So the answer is the government T-bill is going to be safer than a fixed index annuity. Right. I'm struggling to determine which contributions make the most sense for my situation. Okay. All right. So I make $100,000 annually. Time is not on my side. I'm contributing to a traditional to get my employer's match and have been contributing above and beyond that amount to a Roth. Right now, I'm saving 5% in a traditional, 6% in a Roth, and my employer's matching 5 Okay. It's hard to know what tax bracket I'll be in retirement. I also hear that if your traditional payouts in retirement are too high, Social Security could get taxed away. Is that true? Am I better off saving mostly in my Roth to avoid this? Uh, that's a good question. And we certainly don't have near enough information to answer it properly. But I, I guess I'll, I'll tell you what you ought to be looking at. Uh, first of all, you probably have been uh, listening to our show because we, that's kind of what we recommend is in the order of savings is save into your 401k up to the employer match. And then after that, go to Roth. And maybe this is the Roth option in the 401k, it sounds like. Yeah. right? So that's good. We, we like that as a general rule. But there's a hundred exceptions. And the exception to that would be if you're in a really high tax bracket now versus a lower bracket later, you might want to rethink that. If you're subject to alternative minimum tax right now, you certainly want to rethink that because your tax rate's really high. As far as what your tax rate will be in retirement, well, then you've got to kind of do a little analysis there. What's your Social Security? income going to be? Do you have pension income? How much do you have saved in your 401k so we can compute the required minimum distribution? Do you have money outside of retirement that's going to produce income or rental income or things like that? So you add all those up together and you look at, well, what what are your expected itemized deductions? Are you going to continue to give to charity if you have been? Do you have a home mortgage? You can calculate what this will be. That's that's why you got to do a little forecasting. It's not that hard to figure out your future tax rate. You, a future tax rate, you just have to do a little analysis. Assuming that tax rates don't change, right? Yeah, and they they may. They will. <laughs> they may. <laughs> so, I, I mean, if they, if they never change, then yeah, it's fairly easy, and it depends. I mean, if you're 22 years old versus 52 years old and 62 years old, right, you're going to have a different type of assumptions going into this. Sure. But I really like what this person's doing in regards to tax diversification. Because it's like, all right, well, he's hearing some things or she's hearing some things, but that's the problem with shows like this. Right. Because they might just hear a glimpse of what someone is talking about, and it's like, oh, like Social Security is going to be taxed away? Right. Well, no, your Social Security will be subject to tax. The state of California is not going to tax Social Security. Plus, you get 15% tax-free. Yeah, even, so, even if it's fully taxed. Even if it's fully taxed. Right. So, no, that's a myth. Mm-hmm. Even if you're in the highest tax bracket, it's not going to get taxed away. 
right? You're just going to, it's just going to be subject to ordinary income tax. But the fact that looking at, all right, well, here, I got some money going in pre-tax, getting that tax deduction, having that grow tax deferred, then looking at Roth option, have tax-free, you know, availability of my money once I do retire. Um, then, yeah, so, but there's a thousand other factors that you have to yeah. look at. So here's a little easy math just from what we do know. So this individual makes $100,000 and 5% is going into the 401k. So that'd be 5000 bucks. So they're paying tax on 95000 of salary. Now, let's just presume for simplicity, there's no other income. If they are married, which we don't know, but let's just say they are, even if it's a standard deduction and exemptions, that's about 20000 That means their taxable income is about $75,000. And wow, that's right at the top 15. of the 15% bracket. So in other words, if you saved more into the traditional 401k, you're only saving at a 15% rate, which is probably going to be your retirement rate. I mean, I don't know, but that, w- that, that would be a reasonable guess. On the other hand, if you're single, okay, now it, uh, now you'd have 95,000 minus about 10,000 standard deduction uh, and, and exemption. So now you're $85,000. Now you're getting right towards the top of the 25% bracket, really close to the 28% bracket. It might be a little bit different answer but that's a great point al just i mean looking at it like that i wish most people would do that it's like all right well here i'm making ninety a hundred thousand dollars i'm saving five thousand dollars in the 401k okay so that's 95 minus twenty thousand dollars from there that's 75 grand if you're married you're right at the top of the 15 percent tax bracket any other dollar that you should be saving should be going into a roth because you're not getting the big bang for your buck right and 15 percent is a good bracket i don't care what the future is that's a good bracket. i don't guess i will pay it pay the tax <laughs> and let all of that money grow 100 percent tax-free for you right you'll be happy that you did it but then if it's single all right well now that's a totally different story now you're in the 25 close to the 28. I still like the fact of tax diversification. And if this individual was maybe 20 years old, 25 years old, uh, I might have a different approach to it than if they were 55 or 50, you know, 65 years old. Sure, I agree with that. All all we know is time is not on their side. So (laughs) does that mean uh, they're about to retire? Time (laughs) is not on his side. Or terminal disease? I have no idea, buddy. I'm just, I, they you're just, just send me this you're just crap. Reading the question I read it, is. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> I think she found you on FINRA. Yeah. All right. See? Any? Pretty good, right? No red flags. So I'm <laughs> no, on FINRA. No, no complaints? I guess no. I'm knock on wood. None of our listeners. Yeah. Well, I've got plenty of complaints <laughs> from this radio show, but not the advice I get. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get daily. I get emails blasted to me. You know, we like Always. Big, we like Big Al, but we don't really like Joel that yeah. much. Joel, my name is Joe. By the way, if you're going to address me and barrage me, I would like you to at least say the right name, Joe Joseph. Right. Hey, Joel. <laughs> yeah. Listen to your show. Yeah. Really like Big Al. <laughs> you don't know what your head from your. Oh, I'm on too. Well, yep, okay. There you go. All right, so we're good. Perfect record to you. No strikes. Please email me how much you hate the show. <laughs> <laughs> we, it seems like we've been getting a lot more positive feedback these days. All right, everyone. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Go to iTunes, listen to it there. If you've uh, missed, we got some great interviews lined up in the future. We had Dr. Daniel Crosby last week. That was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, that's it for us today. And we'll see you on the flip side. So to recap today's show, right now, that biggest tax cut ever, it's more like a list of bullet points. Knowing your required beginning date and making sure you take your required minimum distributions out of the correct accounts can help you avoid costly RMD mistakes. And since the government can print its own money and insurance companies can't, T-bills are definitely safer than fixed indexed annuities. Special thanks to Daniel Prince CFA from iShares by BlackRock for telling us all about ETFs and the exchange-traded funds industry, where the future is looking at fixed income and smart beta. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. 
Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.